Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days. 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up and it got me thinking about Backtable. We are getting good practical knowledge from our podcast, but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need. And that's what we're doing with Backtable Plus. Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts. And we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top. Yeah. In addition to getting this information in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with CME if I made this happen. There are three years worth of CME credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com and click the tab that says courses. And that's it. We also made a mobile app and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's app store as well. Couple more things. From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription, a great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Backtable Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top. This week on the Backtable Podcast. And I, I think if anybody wants to take this on, you, you have to have a pretty deep understanding of the underlying you know, disease process and I think more IRs are being involved in that. And actually turns out that when you invest the time and effort and the necessary clinic visits with the necessary number of patients to manage them from a non-procedural standpoint, turns out your urologists actually respect you a lot more as, as they should. I think it actually enables a more collaborative relationship. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. This discussion is supported by Philips OBL and ASC Solutions Symphony Suite, the industry leader in opening cardiovascular office-based labs and ambulatory surgery centers. With the convenience of a single trusted point of contact, they offer more of what you need to turn your passion into reality, including a full range of high-performing, highly specialized equipment and services, devices, financial options, site planning, guidance on construction partnerships, and more. When it comes to opening an OBL or ASC, Symphony Suite delivers convenience and support as the expert you need, the partner you trust. To learn more, visit philips.com slash symphonysuite. Now, back to the episode. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast. This is a wonderful opportunity for me. This is Dana Dunleavy from Buffalo, New York, and quite a big fan of Backtable. Lots of wonderful episodes, and this is my first episode as a host, and very honored to be here with Kavi Devalipali and Ian Wilson. And maybe we can just open right up into a little bit of a background. Ian, would you like to take it away? Sure thing. So uh, glad to be here as well. Big fan of the podcast. And um, this is actually my 30th year since I decided to become an IR. 
I made a decision when I was 19. I was doing bench research at the University of Rochester, 1993. And I had an amazing experience with an interventional radiologist who was from Nigeria. And he was such a talented and caring physician, did amazing stuff. And I said, you know what? I want to do what you're doing. And that was 1993 as a 19-year-old. So I started medical school as a kid, you know, knowing that I wanted to be an interventional radiologist. So here we are 30 years later, you know, that's, that's what I'm doing. And, um, and I'll just feel very fortunate, you know, to be part of this robust specialty, which is uh, no doubt going to solve a lot of problems for uh, generations to come. So glad to be here to talk about it. Wonderful. Kavi? Yeah, thanks, Dana. It's a great opportunity to be back on the podcast. This time with you, Dana, and you, Ian. Hope listeners going to enjoy this episode. We got some insightful things I, I think people will be interested in hearing about. Like Ian, I'm very passionate about IR. I'm a little earlier on in my career, about five years out of training. For listeners who are interested more in my backstory, um, you can tune into episode 201, go into detail there, and then um, you can hear a little bit more on episodes 225 and 337, where we talk about locums. But we're going to be talking about a little something different today, just kind of been related somewhat to the locum's path and uh, hopefully uh, people will take interest in it. So thanks again. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, that's wonderful. And why don't we start right in there, Kavi, with kind of taking from where you've been, because there's such national interest in locums, if we call it that, or switching maybe even to, to say independent interventional radiology. So many people that have interest in it, as well as frustration with other aspects of the field. Um, do you want to say... Uh, where things have gone since last episode? Yeah, absolutely. Last time I, I recorded was during SIR. It was part two of our locum series with my friends, Shamit Desai and Michelle Kadakia. Locums has been an interesting experience for me. For, for those who aren't familiar with kind of me and my journey, I started my career off as a typical hospital-based IR, doing a mix of IR and DR, not fully cognizant of the realities of that, of that life, being a newer generation IR kind of traded a more clinical model, if you will. It didn't sit well with me. So I kind of took matters in my own hands and I ended up helping to start an OBL, which was a wonderful experience, but also full of challenges. Needless to say, I ended up moving on and I've been doing locums for the last two years. At our last episode, I was most recently in a hospital in South Dakota where, where I still work. And additionally, I have three OBL contracts in Florida. So needless to say, I'm all over the place, but it's been a pretty fulfilling existence traveling, getting to do what, what I love to do in IR, both on the hospital and on the outpatient side. I think there's a, you know, I hear from a lot of interventional radiologists, especially young ones, and there's a lot of frustrations that people have. I think we're very much a field in transition. We're a field in flux. We're very early as a specialty, still trying to define ourselves. And I think the challenge right now is a lot of young IRs coming out are trying to find a home pretty much where they can use those hard-earned skills to the best of their abilities. And I think it's hard because we're in a period where I think as a field, we are transitioning away from a model in which we've traditionally practiced, which is hospital-based, doing a mix of interventional and diagnostic work to a model that's more clinical, more focused on longitudinal care, regardless of site of service. I think it's independent of site of service. And I think that's hard. There's not a lot of opportunities in the market. They exist for sure, but they're, they're hard to come by. And I think as such, there's a lot of frustration among kind of the earlier generation, younger generation IR trying to 
trying to figure out the optimal career path for themselves. And I've been pretty active speaking about it, writing about it in my blog, LineMonkeyMD, for those who are interested, and find myself having a lot of conversations with many different IRs. And um, I'm excited to be on this podcast with you guys because it's really inspired me to think about solutions to at least help certain people. And this is a little bit broad, but can you name some of the ways that young and, and experienced interventional radiologists have reached out to you and you've been able to provide them opportunities that have had greater job satisfaction? Absolutely. One avenue in which people have reached out to me first has been breaking into the OBL space from the office-based lab or office interventional suite space. Take your, take your pick. But moving from inpatient to outpatient, that tends to be a pretty, pretty hot theme for many in our fields. And it's a side of service that's growing. So when I made that leap for myself after two years from completing fellowship, that was novel for me. And uh, I learned a lot of hard lessons doing that. And I had actually the benefit of documenting my, my lessons really real time on my blog, really more therapeutic for me, but I, I think people took to it and they hopefully gathered some lessons from it, even though that wasn't necessarily the intention at the time. And people reached out asking how to break into that space. And I think it's an exciting space. It's definitely one that many of us aspire to be involved in, but it's a little, little funny because as passionate as I am about office interventional suites. It actually took me leaving an OBL on my own terms and starting to do locums where I was in a point in my life where I had a little bit of a transitional period with my wife, who many, many listeners may know as a vascular surgery fellow wrapping up training. Had a little period in my life where I had some geographical uncertainty. I wasn't sure where we we're going to live. So in these transitional periods in your life, I've kind of gravitated to locums. And for me, it made a lot of sense. And it actually took me going to go from the OBL back to a hospital, this time in, in a different setting and different terms for me to kind of realize that, you know, a lot of the frustrations we talk about, especially from the early career side, finding that optimal job are not necessarily specific to site of service. I think some of them are, but I realized that there is potential to do a lot of good in, in hospitals. So as I started writing more about locums and my locums experience, I think more recently, I've had a lot more outreach about people trying to break into that space. And I think I've been hopefully able to navigate. And it's not just me. I got friends as well. I shout out to Shamit Desai, Vishal Kadakia. They've been instrumental as well, who have been able to guide people and uh, get them into locum situations. And I, I think often locums has negative connotations. I don't think it has to be that way. And we've definitely addressed that on prior episodes. But I think as those who come out of training may find themselves in less than satisfactory situations. Maybe they don't, it doesn't work out for one way or another. I think a lot of people try to pivot. And I think locums has been a way to pivot away from maybe a situation that wasn't to their liking and try something else. And I think as I've done that for myself, I've been able to, you know, relay lessons that I've learned kind of from the school of hard knocks and uh, helping others kind of get on their own path to whatever brings them happiness. That's wonderful. And I think actually that's a great opportunity to transition to Ian. And one of the things he, he actually called this as an independent IR is the midlife crisis. And I actually thought it was kind of a cool name because, you know, it obviously we have people at all stages of their career doing it, but it seems that sometimes people do kind of the standard radiology work, you know, with a radiology group and they see if they can get used to it. And eventually some people decide just as you said, there's a turning point and they're looking for something different. And I think 
you and Bashal and others have really provided an opportunity for them. Ian, do you want to uh, speak to that? And and also, I think you know, as as my daughter says, there's there's a lot of different types of of intellect, and she feels that the greatest one is imagination. And and you're my uh, greatest strategy guy, always thinking about new concepts and ideas to make things better. So I think we can touch on that. And and just to start with, you know, when I was a medical student, I had the the privilege of of working with Ian while he was a fellow and uh, great honor, you know, really guided my path a lot. But, you know, some of the things Ian has done is worked in academics, work in private hospitals, started his own, own OBL. He's traveled and, and covered many OBLs and grown them. And then, Ian, maybe you could even start with, you know, what you're offering next week. Sure thing. So thank you, you know, for that, uh, those accolades, because if you think about it, we're practitioners that have a history of innovation, right? Innovation radiology was founded by people who dared to do something different. And so connecting with that spirit of our specialty, I think is very important to realize that you've got the winds of innovation kind of at your back, right? So in certain settings, in a certain phases of, of career, there's a tendency to do things which are a little bit more comfortable, right? I remember when I was leaving the academic setting and starting a private practice, an OBL actually was the first OBL of its kind in my area that was dedicated to doing mostly peripheral vascular cases. You know, some of my mentors, colleagues said, you know, I wish I could join you doing this, but I'm just at a phase of my career where I just can't. And so, you know, I really got to give it up to the next generation of IRs who are daring to go out into the OBL setting so soon after a fellowship where folks who are, you know, my age, you know, finished fellowship in, you know, the early 2000s who were trained by people who only knew hospital-based interventional radiology kind of gravitated toward the comfort of that, you know? And so in order to kind of advanced to feel, you have to get uncomfortable, right? I mean, nothing is ever advanced from a position of comfort and stability. You kind of have to get a little bit uncomfortable with opportunities and challenge yourself because that's where the growth happens, right? And so one of the things that I realized was that the skill set that we have is portable. And so as you mentioned, I've taken that same skill set and created revenue streams and existing practices practice overseas going to Africa on Friday, you know, to, uh, to practice this craft in East Africa. I was part of the uh, faculty for Road to IR, which is the Intervest Radiology Fellowship Training Program in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Uh, so shout out to the uh, Road to IR family for actually introducing me to the global scope of what it is that we do. Because the same thing that we do at home, we can do abroad. Same thing you could do where you live, where you've trained, you can do elsewhere. We talk about rural settings, right? There's a need for our skill set. There's need for physicians who solve problems the way we do. And so the overarching principle that guides me is to use what I have maximally. And it's one thing that, you know, my mother always taught me and she's kind of my, my entrepreneurial inspiration. And she says, you know, it's always about maximum utilization of available resources. And if you think about it, you yourself 
it can be that resource to be used maximally. And so wherever possible to practice your craft for the benefit of others, no matter if it's in a rural area that you may be unfamiliar with or, you know, on the other side of the globe, uh, where there's a need, we can travel to meet that need, share what it is that you have with underserved communities. And so that's kind of one of my guiding principles, which is to take what I have and, and practice it where it's needed. That's wonderful. And obviously you did that when you created your own OBL and you're doing that next week in a whole different way, you know, going international. And I think you could imagine that there must be pretty straightforward morbidity and mortality impacts if you were to go next week. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a queue of patients that would otherwise be cared for due to some events that happened recently that have affected the provision of care, but we're responding to that need acutely because, again, as IRs, we solve problems. And some of the problems can be logistics, they can be organizational, administrative, but nonetheless, we're problem solvers, right? And I was taught as a fellow to not give up easily, right? Because oftentimes patients don't have any other options but you, like you're it. It's not a matter of going to the OR to do something. No, they need you to be super selective to embolize that pseudoaneurysm or whatever it is. There is no option. It's just you. So figure it out, you know? Same thing that I apply, you know, to, to life in general. It's about trying permutations and iterations that make sense to try before you say, okay, I've tried everything. And so that's the benefit of what we bring to our patients is not just the, the manual skills, but, but our intellect and problem-solving abilities. Yeah, you can't do everything, but you know, it's worth a shot in a lot of cases. Yeah, and I think, you know, as it used to be thought that this was really an international issue, that we don't have these underserved issues in this country, but we've seen more and more articles come out now in JACR, SIR, other things talking about really the interventional radiology crisis in this nation and the morbidity and mortality impacts, about 30% mortality impact if you don't have adequate subspecialists in rural community hospitals. And we see that that is growing rapidly, that there aren't interventional radiologists and many factors in that. But one of the major reasons, you know, people are so excited to hear what you guys both have to say is that we've been talking about it for over a year. And uh, recently at SIR, we talked with many of our friends in academic and private groups, as well as independent interventionalists. And no one really has a solution. And you guys have come out with a solution that's both an opportunity to provide better care to underserved networks and also an opportunity for physicians looking for that opportunity. Do you want to uh, start off with that, Ian, since you described it as a calling? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, this is exactly what this is, right? At least that's how I feel about IR is that you have a choice to do a bunch of things when you're in medical school, you know, or life in general. But I think for me particularly, and I think that Kavi feels the same way, and I'm sure you do as well, that this is absolutely a calling to do this kind of work. And so what we've developed is um, an opportunity to give interventional radiologists a vehicle to practice in remote settings, basically live where you want, but work where you needed in the form of a company called Travelier, which uh, has the letters IR contained within it, but also speaks to the modality you know, of getting 
your talents where they need it, which is to travel to where they are. So additionally, by giving an idea like this, the structure of a company allows a larger group of people, you know, to realize opportunities. And it also allows institutions to engage positions. You know, you, you hear, if you talk to hospital administrators and people that try to solve personnel problems as a means of solving, addressing clinical needs, that they really do want to talk to physicians directly. And so that's what we're doing is creating a way for hospitals, institutions, systems to talk to physicians who know firsthand intimately what some of those needs are. And also on the physician side, say, hey, look, the way you're thinking about practicing is more than likely not unique to you. There's probably several people, 20, 40, who knows how many people who feel the same way about the dearth of services in a certain parts of the country and perhaps looking for ways to, to kind of answer that call. And so we're building that, that uh, the means to do it, you know, in the form of a company, which will provide opportunities for interventional radiologists, you know, to practice in a way that, you know, may be uh, non-obvious and to also provide some value for institutions and hospitals because you're working with people who know exactly, you know, uh, what the needs are, who's worked in a variety of settings and can apply uh, that sensibility to their problems. You know, we're not just consultants, you know, looking at an issue, but we're practitioners. We you know we're, we're, we're caregivers who bring a certain, I guess, a uh, certain animus, you know, to what we do that perhaps wouldn't otherwise be there from non-physicians. That's wonderful. And when I was at SAR, I tried to meet up with Kavi, but he was bombarded with all physicians, you know, our colleagues looking to him for opportunities to say, how do you do it and how do I do it? So with that, Kavi, I think you've mentioned before and, and Michelle has as well, uh, a lot of locums companies charging 30, 40, 50% on top of what the physician is making. One of the opportunities you've addressed here is that this is a physician run opportunity with two goals. You know, one is to provide best quality care to all regions, and the other is to provide an opportunity to your colleagues and to the Society of Interventional Radiology. Anything you could say to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm really thankful for you and Ian. Actually, you know, when I when I met Ian, saw his passion for interventional radiology and for solving a problem that I've, you know, seen in my own life as a young IR, I couldn't help but get involved in this. I mean, this pretty much speaks to everything I'm trying to do. And I've, I've kind of lived this life on the locum side. And I think I first really understood this issue when I went out to do locums after I left the OBL a few years ago. I went to a rural community. I went to a community that needed an IR physician, and it was on a locums basis. And as you mentioned, Dana, locums, locums can be challenging. I think I, I went out there with the locums company. I, I got sent out there by a recruiter. And I learned a lot of those lessons that I relayed on prior episodes from, from that experience. And Locums was fantastic because I was able to get plugged into a new environment, see what's available, meet some amazing people, and really become integrated in a community. I, I worked in this one hospital for 32 weeks over the course of the year, which was pretty awesome. So I kind of was pretty much treated like a, like a local, like one of them, but I didn't live there, right? 
home was technically somewhere somewhere else. And it kind of dawned upon me at that time that, hey, we can create pretty amazing services and communities that that need our talents. There's no question about it. And I think we can meet a need for both hospitals, patients in those communities, and also for IRs who are looking for different opportunities. So when you think about locums work, you're literally talking generally about short to intermediate term assignments where you're waiting, you're pretty much a placeholder, and at some point you will likely be replaced. And that happened to me at this hospital when they hired somebody. It just so turns out that facilities that end up needing locums at some point are probably going to need locums again in the future. And that's for a variety of reasons. That can be because of areas that are difficult to recruit to, where maybe the traditional model of having a physician who moves themselves and perhaps their family to a location that's perhaps seemingly less desirable, it's harder to do that. That can be because potentially institutional culture, maybe both. It's hard to say. There's a variety of factors that go into this. And the truth of the matter is we know that rural care is an issue. In fact, if you know listeners are interested, maybe we can have this link in the footnotes, but there's a great study from the JACR by Dr. Findice et al. This is back in 2022 uh, that basically demonstrated that 59% of rural respondents in a large survey had difficulty recruiting interventional radiologists. And that's, that's the truth of the matter. So, you know, locums is, is hard because it, it isn't a long-term solution. So I think what Ian has in mind that I'm happy and excited to be involved with is a solution to meet a long-term need for a lot of facilities where we can focus on creating a sustainable, clinically oriented model for facilities that need our talents. And we can do so staffing these facilities with interventional radiologists who are passionate about clinical care and developing a impact and a long-term relationship with others in that community. And just to clarify, so make sure that I understand for, for all the other listeners, is that if there's just a single cavi, you know, going out to South Dakota and covering a huge network that really needs care, that can't really be sustainable alone. But doing it in this process makes it actually very easy because they're essentially doing one recruitment, one contract, and, and now they have a sustainable team. Does that sound correct? Exactly, Dana. This isn't locums. This isn't coming in to meet a short-term need. This is creating long-term, long-lasting interventional radiology services and communities that need them and having perhaps a team of three physicians splitting the needs of that facility or network of facilities. So that's pretty much what it is. And I'm sure Ian could share some more details on this podcast, but this is a model that I'm extremely excited about. I'm bullish about it. Because the fact that it matters, people, people need our services and there's so much opportunity to do good out there that I think is just untapped. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, part of my weekly digest, at least, was uh, Becker's healthcare review. And there was some startling statistics about hospital closures in the rural parts of America. And th the reasons can be myriad for hospitals closing, but the fact is that they are closing. and there's a looming public health crisis. Imagine where once was a facility that people could go to for a variety of things, you know, be it emergency room services, obstetric services, uh, cardiac, uh, neuro services, and that goes away. It's subtracted from their community. What are the implications of that? Now you're 
trying to provide care in other parts of the state or region at greater costs because you've got to transport someone to the facility that actually does the services that are no longer available. It's a problem. You know, it's a looming public health problem, this rolling closure of rural hospitals. And what we're talking about creating is, is a solution for that, honestly. You know, so yes, individually, not a sustainable solution for any institution, but as a group of four, six IRs with a variety of skill sets who are, as Kabi mentioned, truly vested, you know, in the health and well-being of the community, that's kind of where sustainable change happens. That's where impact lives is in the desire to create value over time. You know, we're not looking to be a Band-Aid. You know, we're all familiar with, you know, different types of care and interventions that are done as temporizing measures. But the key to addressing this, again, looming public health issue is to, while we have the time, which is now, think about ways to solve the problem cost-efficiently with maintaining a high standard of care in terms of uh, clinical care delivery across a variety of sites of service. You know, this opportunity is one that I kind of think about, you know, in terms of like a temporally, right? If you think about an intervention being timed for the need of that intervention, if it's not now, then when do you solve this problem, right? And if you don't, band together a group of like-minded people who want to solve this problem, then who else is going to solve it? You know, it's really, and I'm talking about us being interventional radiologists, people who are invested in seeing this specialty continue to serve humanity in the way that it has done, you know, for generations to come. And honestly, you know, when I think about this company as Travelier and in terms of what it can do for future generations, here I am as, you know, the Gen X, you know, and, and Kavi being a, you know, millennial, you've got this kind of multi-generational group, you know, that is kind of bound by purpose, but has as a strength, that sensibility that comes from having a different generations at the table, you know, solving problems side by side, you know? And so if out of this comes a way for future interventional radiologists to practice, then awesome. You know, that, that would be the icing on the cake for me, honestly, you know. But the first thing we need to do is is solve these these the clinical needs by a very creative, cost efficient personnel strategy. First and foremost, you gotta take care of patients. And so let's let's do that in a way that that uh that is sustainable. Now important in this independent interventional radiology discussion is site of service. So, you know, we often talk about OBLs, ASCs, outpatient hospital, and even inpatient hospital, but we'll just make it three categories. And for me, as an example, you know, I was recruited to this region because of the largest breast imaging uh, radiology group in the region that had no interventional radiology. So I was able to develop initially an OBL out of an empty gamma camera room and, you know, now three renovations later, it's turned into something pretty special. But as other examples, you know, today I got calls uh, from different regions. One was a region, just like both of you are talking about, actually a city, but, you know, we would say a, a small city that had several hospitals, none of which had 
fibroid embolization as an option. They were asking for all the things that they read about, you know, like prostates, fibroids, ovarians, all these things. And, and then the same day, get a call from someone saying, we need you to come and cover these ASCs in various different cities. And they listed them off and, and they have all of this work built up at these ASCs. Now, as you guys know, I'm a little bit of a strange guy, right? And, and pretty focused on the musculoskeletal side. And one thing that, that we'll talk about uh, is the fact that Backtables had such tremendous interest in that, that they have their own section for musculoskeletal interventions now, which is fantastic. And the Society of Interventional Radiology Pain Council is uh, working very hard to create more workshops, hands-on workshops or HOW house that are really helpful because many of the things that, as Ian described, right, I mean, we're, we're such a dynamic field. And a lot of the things that are being done right now and are tremendously rewarding and really in need are things that we didn't learn during fellowship. They're related, but not directly. So for instance, spinal cord stimulators, and I think that's an opportunity maybe to shift to OEIS. Ian recently met you know, with one of the companies that provides spinal cord stimulation for painful diabetic neuropathy. And OEIS, even though it's the Outpatient Endovascular Interventional Society recently started having musculoskeletal talks. And why? Because, you know, it's focused on OBLs and ASCs. Tremendous amount of opportunity there for things like indirect decompression and fusion of the lumbar spine, sacroiliac joint fusion, spinal cord stimulators, there's uh, basal vertebral nerve ablation, so many things that I think our colleagues are are looking to get involved in and are, are very rewarding and profitable in ASCs. Kavi, do you want to address what was best and worst about OEIS this year? Absolutely. Um, you know, OEIS is, is a tremendous society. I've been active in it now for almost four years. And um, it's always a pleasure, you know, being involved. Uh, I've gotten more involved over the years and thankfully had the, the true pleasure of actually helping coordinate the resident and fellows portion of the uh, meeting, in addition to being on the general planning committee, there's a lot of excitement in the outpatient space. There's no question about it, especially now in IRs, OBLs have uh, seemed to have really caught on, which is, which is wonderful. And, uh, you know, certainly OEIS 2023 was an excellent conference. You know, Doug Beal, tremendous speaker. He gave a, a wonderful presentation on MSK interventions. Uh, look forward to hopefully having him back in future years. A lot of buzz about that. I think what kind of interested me mostly for OEIS 2023 was the resident and medical student participation was at an all-time high. Uh, there's a ton of interest. And when we're talking about the concept of independent IR, we're talking about people who want to do IR 100%. It's really what we're talking about. And you know that doesn't necessarily mean outside of radiology, you can do 100% IR in certain radiology contexts, but we're really talking about a common thread that binds all of us, which is longitudinal clinical care. And I think what excited me most about the conference was seeing all the residents and students who are really passionate about that. And I think a lot of them gravitate to conferences like the OEIS because that, you know, outpatient models tends to uh, facilitate that type of practice. And I think many of them are seeking that type of model where they can do 100% IR. So I, you know, the outpatient space, very, very exciting. And, uh, you know, I hope more people, uh, you know, take uh, notice of OEIS and take interest in it. I think 
we're a growing society and there's um, a lot, a lot that we offer. That's wonderful. One thing I was going to address that I thought was just kind of a funny story, but you and Ian do a lot more prostate artery embolization than me. I know, Kavi, you've you even built a lot of programs and taught a lot of people, which is amazing. When I was giving grand rounds for a urology group we won't mention, I gave part of the talk, but the uh, other physician was giving part of the talk. He was, he was new to our group, nice opportunity to introduce him. So I sat out in the audience and uh, one of the urologists didn't know I was there. And he was just saying, F these guys, like we have our own procedures. Why do we even let them in here? And yet, you know, that relationship has really grown and strengthened in that I think there's tremendous respect for each other. There's a lot of referrals going back and forth. Anything you want to address in terms of that and the OBL versus ASC market? Yeah, I think regarding especially prostate artery embolization, I, I think we're actually at our infancy when it comes to the development of prostate artery programs uh, nationally. I think what I'm really most excited about is not just more people doing this procedure in terms of IRs doing this procedure, but I'm interested in more IRs actually becoming experts in managing lower urinary tract symptoms, LUTs. And I, I think if anybody wants to take this on, I, you, you have to have a pretty deep understanding of the underlying you know, disease process. And I think more IRs are being involved in that. And actually it turns out that when you invest the time and effort and the necessary clinic visits with the necessary number of patients to manage them from a non-procedural standpoint, turns out your urologists actually respect you a lot more, as, as they should. I think it actually enables a more collaborative relationship when, you know, IRs and clinical, other clinical specialists are on a level playing field, or as close to loving level playing field as possible. And when it comes to knowledge and being truly interested in the non-procedural management of patients, I've noticed that in my own life. And for those who I've helped build PAE programs, I always encourage that. And um, I think it's exciting. I think it's an exciting time for us in IR to really adopt that type of mentality. And I'm really excited about new trainees coming out. They have knowledge that I wish I had five or six years ago. I think it's only going to get better. And I think really when, when I think about some of the challenges that I faced, it's really been the non-procedural side and uh, finding opportunities to actually put those skills to use which is definitely something that we are hoping to solve, at least the, what we're talking about in this podcast, really more pertinent on the hospital side and perhaps hospital outpatient certainly applies to the OBL and ASC space as well. Do you want to quickly address the usual topic of hospital credentialing and privileges and, and uh, I think some improvements we've had nationally? Absolutely. I think for listeners, um, Dr. Bill Julian did a great podcast recently with Ali Behetti. It was a, it was a wonderful job, both of them. I applaud them on that podcast. Um, and, you know, Bill really talked about his career being independent now for over two decades and being one of the first interventional radiologists to create an office interventional suite in the country. One of the first ones, which is really impressive. You know, one of the challenges of being able to open your own facility is Many states and many insurance companies require one to have hospital privileges in order to pretty much get started. And that's a major hindrance, not in every state. For instance, where I live in North Carolina, that's not an issue. But in certain states, particularly where Bill is in Florida, that's a huge issue. You either need to have hospital privileges or a transfer agreement um, in order to you know, open your office interventional suite. And you know, the issue that we run in in the radiology world that Bill describes beautifully and um, you know, which has been documented extensively. Anybody could Google his name on the SAR Connect forums. 
Jerry Nieswecki, of course, also a pioneer. He wrote a, a very nice uh, paper about it that's published. But the idea is a lot of radiology groups who have hospital contracts that are so-called exclusive contracts will pretty much preclude any independent interventional radiologists from getting on staff at any given hospital. And that's, that's a huge problem. And what, what makes the situation particularly frustrating is the fact that these same so-called exclusive contracts don't bar other specialists from doing procedures that interventional radiologists could do, like peripheral arterial disease interventions, for example. So, you know, it's a lot easier to be an independent interventional cardiologist or vascular surgeon to get on staff at a hospital as opposed to being an interventional radiologist. It turns out we often end up fighting our own radiology kind trying to achieve that. Now, where I'm encouraged by this issue and seeing some of the progress that we've made is right now there's such an acute need for interventional radiology, and we've certainly addressed that from a rural standpoint, but it's not just a rural issue. I think rural is, is pretty much a dire need, definitely a public health crisis. But in many markets, even in major metropolitan areas, we need interventional radiologists. There's a huge shortage of interventional radiologists right now. And that's certainly reflected in the locums market in our very, very attractive job market right now. And it just so happens that I think I've noticed, at least anecdotally, that many radiology groups are willing to entertain the prospects of having an interventional radiologist who's independent on staff just out of sheer need to have one to cover the hospital. I, I think that's, that's very encouraging. We can do an entire episode alone on this issue, and I don't know, maybe, maybe Aaron will call me down the road. If not me, I'm happy to recommend people who could address it. But I think it really gets down to the structure of our field and then our relationship with diagnostic radiology. And we'll be hearing more about that, certainly through other, other media in coming months. So look out for that. But I think needless to say, there is some movement on the issue. And I think credit to a lot of those uh, training uh, new interventional radiologists the right way with the approach of longitudinal clinical care. There's a demand for independent IR services. And I, I think we're going to see more of it despite the political challenges. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. You know, one, you make the, the point that the, the need has become so dire that it's harder for people to exercise that exclusivity. And yet we still do see it. The majority of places, you know, that even though we know that they're not able to cover the needs of the hospital network, they still implement that exclusivity, you know, with known harm to patients and the region because they can't uh, provide consistent services. Ian, I know that you've talked quite a bit about the opportunities for our colleagues as interventional radiologists who are looking for independent work in these different sites and OBLs and ASCs and hospitals. And I think that one of the things that you've come down upon is that the greatest need and the biggest opportunity, even though all of us are, are pretty focused on OBLs and ASCs, that's actually not quite as big a need as the hospital. Thoughts? Absolutely. You know, so just by design, hospitals exist to take care of populations. And so where you can find niche services and ASCs and you know, office-based interventional suites, the population uh, health really takes place on the hospital setting, right? That's where you've got the infrastructure, you've got the, the support, you've got the administration to, to really render care at a scale that's just not possible in an ASC or, or OBL setting. That being said, the most 
successful systems are ones where they have a portfolio of sites of service that is varied, right? So uh, some hospitals that have an affiliation or even have an ASC as part of their network, shifting some cases to the ASC side of service that are appropriate, shifting some cases in some instances to OBLs can decompress the system and allow for perhaps some of the more complicated care to be rendered in the hospital setting. Because again, you know, that's what hospitals are there for, right? I mean, there are some things that just don't have a code outside of hospitals and some things that don't have a code outside of ASCs. And the reasons are varied. It's not always, you know, a matter of clinical equipoise, you know, across sites of service. It's political in some instances. Uh, it's economic, you know, which ultimately begets, you know, political involvement. But the point I'm making is that, you know, having a diverse portfolio of sites of service is beneficial to systems. And that's one of the things that perhaps systems should consider, you know, is that not all care has to be rendered in the hospital, but a significant proportion of it should in order to take care of a population. You know, there's some things that, you know, you just can do more of in a hospital because you can run, you know, up into the morning, right? And take care of how many more patients, you know, than you could in an ASC setting. So there's definitely a need there. And uh, as as uh, Kavi mentioned earlier, going back into the hospital space kind of gives you an appreciation for what can be done having had that outpatient experience and outpatient perspective. Now you look at the inpatient opportunity a little bit differently, you know, and you may see that there's opportunities there that exist that you wouldn't otherwise know about had you not had that experience of being on the outside looking in at an institution, you know, as a practitioner in the outpatient space. Uh, so there's absolutely, you know, a need to, uh, to ramp up we do in hospitals and to provide value, you know, for hospitals. Because I think that's the, the part that's missing a lot of times is, you know, inverting the scenario and putting yourself in the position of, of a hospital administrator, you know, saying, okay, well, yeah, we got to provide care, but how are we going to pay for it? Some companies, you know, really aren't considering that inversion, you know, to create value. They're looking at it as far as, okay, what can I get out of this contract or this engagement versus thinking about it in terms of how do I not become the problem that someone wants to solve a year or two later, but instead being the partner for a year or two more than you otherwise would have an opportunity to be. So I, I think that's kind of uh, where we're heading, but uh, it's exciting times. You know, I think this is creativity is going to be rewarded, you know, but not just that, business discipline as well. Kind of marrying the two, which is what we're going to do with uh, with this opportunity in front of us. You know, we're having so much fun. We're getting pretty long into this. I should probably close it. And so I think back to my opportunity and somehow Johns Hopkins let me in for residency. And at the time, you know, they, they felt like if they decided you were appropriate for their residency, you were also appropriate for their fellowship. And it was it was your choice you know, of which fellowship to do. However, midway through residency, I had a, uh, a change of thought in which fellowship I wanted to do. And I started thinking about musculoskeletal imaging instead of interventional radiology. And uh, Stan Siegelman, who 
anyone who has met him, uh, I just think is enamored by his intelligence and passion and ability to educate. But he, he told me, Danny, you're not doing musculoskeletal imaging. He's like, when, when we brought you in, we had a path for you. We wanted you to impact the nation in interventional radiology. And it kind of shocked me to uh, hear someone say that, you know, he had already kind of tasked me with, with some things that weren't easy to do. But, you know, I think, Ian, maybe you could describe a little bit more. You, you and Kavi have talked about this, this dual purpose, right, of, of helping the underserved coverage needs and providing opportunities for our colleagues. And you said to Kavi, you know, won't it be difficult to get physicians to leave their homes? And, and Kavi said, nope, we have an enormous amount of people already, you know, waiting and ready. The two of you want to just touch on it as we close out? You know, there's so many people transitioning to locums work right now. I mean, it's the guys, I mean, I think just about every day I get at least one IR, often an IR who I've never met before, reach out to me saying, I listened to you on the back table podcast. How could I do this? And I think it goes to show that there's a large appetite professionally for IRs to rethink their careers and to get out of the standard radiology group model. Okay. And I think for a certain subset of individuals, that's going to mean establishing their own clinical presence in a community over a long period of time and maybe creating their own. But there's a lot of capital risk and there's a lot that goes into that and frankly, a pretty high opportunity cost. And it's not practical for a lot of people, even though I, I love the office interventional space. And I think people look to locums to pretty much transition and maybe try out new things. And I think what ends up happening for some people is they find, you know, new opportunities that they love. And there's actually a fair number of people who continue as an independent contractor in some capacity, whether or not you call it locums anymore is, you know, kind of semantic discussion because at this point they engage in more longitudinal practice patterns where they go to the same site over and over again. For instance, there are sites that I've been going to for over three years now. Am I really locums at that point? I would think not. And when you think about that type of model, you realize that this can be had. Okay. There are hospitals around the country, particularly in rural locations that need us and they need our talents and they need what we can offer. And it's not just standard hospital IR, the thing that I labeled as trash collection, right? On the blog, sure. We need to do basic procedures for patients, but there's an opportunity to create actual longitudinal clinical programs in communities that they never even thought they can have. And if we can do that, we can actually greatly, you know, impact population health in a very positive way. We can do so in a way that's sustainable. We can do so in a way that's rewarding to physicians who seek a different model. And by creating a team out of this and having it as a group effort, we can create sustainability and, you know, not burn people out. I think that's something I've seen in my own life where I do locums about 49 out of 52 weeks a year. I've been doing that for two and a half years now. And let me tell you, it gets a little tiring uh, living out of a suitcase. I've been in five cities the last five days. It's hard. And that's not what we're talking about here. And we're talking about securing contracts and creating IR services and having a team of IRs service a particular facility and together creating great impact by providing quality care in a coordinated fashion with recurring 
team members, recurring IR physicians coming by regularly. And I think that can be very, very powerful. So really excited about it. It's not going to be for everybody, but I think it's going to be very impactful for, for many. And when they realize what could be had, I think people are going to be interested in it. I'm you know, very grateful for you, Dana, and for you, Ian, um, for the opportunity to team together to offer something that's truly novel. And I, I think it's going to be wonderful. Um, so I'm looking forward to what the future holds. I think that's beautifully put, you know, and, and you mentioned something there in terms of, you know, that it's, it's different than, as the lion monkey has mentioned, the, the trash collection, which I think in, in some degrees people understand and, and others, they misunderstand. But the, the point being that beyond just what other people won't do, and that has some purposes and some big impacts too. But as you said, the longitudinal care and the growth, and, and that gives us the opportunity to let Ian close this out because he said that the, what really makes this special in what he's creating is the fact it's going to be more than just a coverage issue, right? It's the opportunity for growth and improvement of care and collaboration. I mean, absolutely. You know, if you have that mindset and that posture for service, like that's what we're really talking about is creating a service. You know, you're not just filling in personnel need or a slot for, you know, one physician or two physicians. You're talking about, you know, being in service to community. And as Kavi mentioned, over time. So yes, you you can't call someone a locum tenens physician who's been there three years, right? You call that someone, you know, who lives where they want, who works where they're needed and it's in service of this community longitudinally. And that's, that's kind of, you know, what the, um, the, the basic principle that's guiding this is. It's, it's service. It all comes back to service, you know. I remember one of the things that I recall as a medical student, you know, from chief resident, you know, who was on vascular surgery, that says, you know what, if you take care of patients, then you'll get to manage different conditions. Kavi is talking about in terms of being clinical, you know, what we've all kind of grown to appreciate is the advancement of IR towards being not just a specialty that's known for its technical brilliance, but for known for its expert clinical care, you know, having that fund of knowledge, that, that command of, of disease processes that complements what you can do technically. But, you know, no one controls patients, so to speak, right? The only people that control patients are physicians. So take care of patients and they'll make their way to you. If you provide a service and you create value for a community, then you'll be doing that for a long time. Wonderful. I'd really like to uh, thank both of you guys, Kavi and Ian, and uh, Backtable Vascular and Interventional and Backtable MSK. You know, I think we, we have an upcoming talk that kind of bridges the two back tables as we'll be talking a little bit based on this, being independent, having other opportunities, and even working in other departments that might be orthopedics, might be neurosurgery, might be vascular surgery. So we'll talk about that in a subsequent episode. But thanks again, gentlemen. Wonderful pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at 
at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lillikinabru. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year, I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days. 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up, and it got me thinking about Backtable. We are getting good, practical knowledge from our podcasts, but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need, and that's what we're doing with Backtable Plus. Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts, and we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top. Yeah, in addition to getting this information in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with CME if I made this happen. There are three years worth of CME credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com and click the tab that says courses. And that's it. We also made a mobile app and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's app store as well. Couple more things. From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription. A great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Backtable Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top.